Our Old Covenant reading this evening comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 133. We'll be reading the entire, entire psalm. Psalm 133, the word of the Lord. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, like the falls which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. New Covenant reading tonight, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 through 47. Also the word of the Lord. And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Jesus Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. This is a glorious and encouraging truth. But what exactly is the church that Jesus Christ is building? The Bible speaks of the church from a multitude of different perspectives. Sometimes it speaks of the church as an institution, focusing on the preaching of God's word, focusing on the right administration of the sacraments, on the offices of elder and deacon, and upon church discipline. Now, that is an important way to look at the church. It is one that was emphasized at the time of the Protestant Reformation by both the Lutherans and the Reformed. The reason for this is that Protestants were putting themselves over against the Roman Catholics who claimed that the way you knew that a church was a true church is that it was in communion with a bishop who had been ordained by a bishop, who had been ordained by a bishop, supposedly going all the way back to the apostles in an unbroken succession. And the Reformers wanted to make clear that's not the way the New Testament itself defines a church. Rather, to be an apostolic church is to submit to the apostolic doctrine and following that doctrine to engage in an apostolic 
practice. These marks of the institutional church are still important for us today. Uh, If you move to a new community and you're looking for a new church to join, at the very forefront of your mind ought to be, is the word of God rightly being preached and taught there? Are they rightly administering the sacraments? Is the church government not perfect, but, but basically aligned with the word of God? And do they seek to practice church discipline in submission to our Lord? Now, we do need to remember that what we're looking for is a church who does these things rightly, not perfectly. There are no perfect churches on this side of the Lord's second coming. Uh, You remember the old quip, if you ever find a perfect church, don't ruin it by joining it. And that is true. Nevertheless, while there is value in focusing on the church as an institution, the Word of God focuses much more upon the church in terms of the people. In terms of we the people being gathered together into the family of God as a community of believers with our covenant children. This is what we're going to be looking at this evening from the second chapter of Acts. We're going to be focusing specifically on that phrase from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the communion of the saints. Now context is important. So let me remind you that the second chapter of Acts tells the story of Pentecost. This is one of the three major pilgrimage feasts that was celebrated according to biblical religion in the Old Covenant from Moses down to the time of Christ. During this pilgrimage festival, Jews from all over the Roman Empire and even beyond would travel great distances to take part in the celebration. The large courtyard around the temple could actually hold more than 200,000 people, an enormous crowd. You want to think about this in terms of your own experience of worship. It is wonderful when we go right next door here and we worship on Sunday morning with 100 people or so, or even quite a few fewer than that in the evening. But then you go to a place like a Ligonier Conference or a large church like Grace Community Church in California where there's a couple of thousand people. And it can be deeply moving to hear all these voices being lifted to God in worship. Well, even in the largest church you've ever gone to, there's only a few thousand people in worship. Imagine how utterly overwhelming it must have been for a Jewish person traveling a long distance from some small rural town to show up in the temple courts to be worshiping the living God with 100, 150, 200,000 people in the very place where the Lord had promised to set his name in one of the most beautiful building complexes in all of history. It must have been incredible. Then suddenly, the sound of a mighty rushing wind overwhelms the crowd as the Holy Spirit fills the original small group of disciples with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in tongues. That is, in the native languages of all these people that have come from all over the place, languages they did not know themselves, 
And this was a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. While they were all astonished, Peter stands up and preaches the good news that Jesus, who had recently been put to death by the hands of lawless men, is, please notice I didn't say was, this Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed king. This Jesus God is raised from the dead since it was not possible for death to hold him. Then quoting from Psalm 110, Peter makes clear that this Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God and that all his enemies are about to be made his footstool. Now when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call. This is the ordinary way. I know this is an extraordinary circumstance. But this is the ordinary way in which the Lord saves people in this present age. The gospel is proclaimed to them. The Holy Spirit convicts them that they believe the gospel is true. And they are also convicted of their own personal need to be saved from their own sin. And so, by God's grace, they repent and believe. And then they are baptized and grafted into the local church as a visible member of the family of God. Later on, we'll see that when the Lord brings parents into the church, he brings their children with them as non-communicant members. Uh, when adults come to faith, God doesn't say you need to leave your young children behind. Rather, in his amazing grace, he brings the children in as non-communicant members of the church set apart to him as being holy. Nevertheless, each covenant child is called upon to make that faith his own. That, in fact, is part of the point of baptism. The promise is placed on them. God's name is placed on them, and it's a call upon them to embrace those promises. Nobody becomes a child of God because of their parents' faith. Beloved, you need life from above, new life from above. You must be born again. Now here, Peter isn't addressing young children. He's addressing those who have been cut to the heart by the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, it isn't necessary for Peter to say everything all at once. He calls them to repent and to be baptized without even mentioning that they need to also believe. Of course, that's clearly implied. Genuine faith, genuine faith is assumed to be at the heart of what they are doing. As John Stott points out, repentance and faith involve each other. Both are signified by baptism in Christ's name, which means by his authority, acknowledging his claims, 
subscribing to his doctrines, engaging in his service, and relying on his merits. Please look back to verse 38 and see what exactly is being promised. Peter declares, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There are two extraordinary promises being made by God through Peter in this passage. First, there is forgiveness of sins. For forgiveness is to be found in no other name than in the name of Jesus. And this forgiveness comes to every single person who turns from their sins to embrace Jesus Christ as their faithful Savior. Second, the whole crowd has experienced this remarkable, remarkable outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues that the apostles are speaking with. That is, speaking in their own languages, which they themselves did not know. But beloved, please notice that Peter does not promise that they will all receive the gift of tongues. He promises them something far better than that. Not merely a gift from the Holy Spirit. Peter promises them that they will receive the Holy Spirit himself. That is, God himself as the gift. And this is not a limited time offer, only available for those at Pentecost. This promise is for them and for their children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Every single person throughout history who places their trust in Jesus Christ receives the promise of the Holy Spirit who is not only with us, but in us. As I like to remind you, Christianity is not a self-help project. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you to help you understand the very word of God which he inspired, to intercede on your behalf with the Father, to stiffen your spine and give you courage, and to cause you to be fruitful in this world. Peter goes on exhorting the crowd with, many words that are not recorded here in Acts, calling upon them to embrace the one way of salvation, which is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Um, this may be the purest revival that has ever taken place in all of history. You know anything about the history of the church, you know that when God does a true work and many people are either becoming more enthusiastic about their faith or coming to faith for the first time, that enthusiasm tends to sweep up the crowds. And so many other people, people who have not been born again, will raise their hands, walk an aisle, make a fresh commitment. And to our outward eyes, we can't tell the difference. They seem all excited about Jesus Christ. But sadly, as time goes on, their ardor wanes. 
And we see them drifting away from the church, from God's people giving clear evidence that they in fact never have been one of God's people. This was different. Uh, It's hard for me to read this passage without thinking that this 3,000 or so souls who are being grafted into the church visibly are actually being, other than the fact that they're also being grafted into Christ personally. That is, I believe that the vast majority, if not all of these people, were in fact truly saved. That's simply extraordinary and frankly unlike what we should expect in our day-to-day life. Yet at the heart of this evening's passage is the ordinary pattern for the people of God, which is found in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, granting the extraordinary circumstances in which the New Testament church has sprung to life, these four activities should mark out every single healthy church until Christ comes again. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For three years, the disciples had walked closely with Jesus. They had seen him do extraordinary things. They had listened as he opened his mouth and revealed mysteries that had been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now they were being sent out to engage in the Great Commission, which Jesus has given not only to them, but to us, to all of his church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey Everything that I have commanded you, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, although the Jewish pilgrims, many of them had traveled far and wide to come to Pentecost, uh, I suspect if they'd been cut to the heart and truly converted, most of them didn't just rush back home. They wanted to spend some time there in the environs of Jerusalem to listen to the apostles to have them tell them exactly what this Jesus is like, what he had taught. I mean, how can they obey everything that Jesus taught them if they don't know what it is? Some of them probably were so moved by this new experience and this new family they'd been grafted into that they chose, at least for an extended period, to remain in Judea. But even those who were going home, now going home to start the beginnings of new churches, They would have to be well-grounded in who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he has taught us to do as his people. It is vital for us in our own day to recover this devotion of the early church to the apostolic teaching. The people were not content to be vaguely familiar with it. They didn't walk around saying deeds, not creeds. You know, as long as I'm living a good life, that's all that matters, right? Rather, they very much wanted to know who Jesus is, what he had done, and what he had taught. So they devoted themselves to listening to the apostles as they authoritatively explained 
all these things to them. Well, I mean, it would be a great experience if we could go back in time and listen to Peter or John or James preach. I mean, that would be just extraordinary for us. The truth is, we are in a more privileged position than they were because we have all these things written down in God's word. God's word translated into our own language. Speaking of tongues, as it were, you all contain the word of God in your own native language. In fact, we live in a day because of the internet where we have resources that people could not even imagine on your cell phone. Things that people couldn't even imagine when I started going to seminary in 1989. We are extraordinarily privileged. The question is not our access here in the West. The question for us is our devotion. Now, I trust that you realize that sometimes the OPC is criticized for being overly intellectual. We're going to look at a moment in precisely how we can go off track and make that a valid criticism. It is possibly a valid criticism of our denomination. Nevertheless, I fear that much of this criticism comes from people who simply aren't devoted to the apostolic teaching, but as they don't want to work at it, and who aren't particularly concerned by living by every word that comes forth from the mouth of our God. That is, they're content to have the general gist of Christianity and then simply go their own way. As James Montgomery Boyce points out, a spirit-filled church is always going to be a Bible-studying church. Let me say that again. A spirit-filled church is always going to be a Bible-studying church. Those two things go together. Now, he points out there have been periods in church history where the Bible was not readily available to people. In fact, where political and religious authorities sometimes worked actively to keep the Bible out of the people's hands. Needless to say, that is not our position here in Massachusetts this evening. Nevertheless, Dr. Boyce continues... Whenever the church has been greatly blessed, where the Spirit of God has come upon God's people and the gospel has gone forth in great power, these have always been ages in which the Bible has been studied carefully. Why? Because the closer men and women come to God, the closer they want to become to the place where he speaks to their hearts. And that's in the Bible. What is true of the church is true for individuals as well. If you are spirit-filled, you will be drawn to this book. For this reason, while devotion to God's word is absolutely vital for us, um, it's kind of a work of super-irrigation for us to have to try to convince people that they ought to study it. Uh, When a newborn child is born... They're hungry. They desire their mother's milk. They eat. If a newborn child does not want to eat food, we know that there is something fundamentally wrong. If a person claiming to be a newborn Christian does not want to eat God's word, to be nourished by it, 
At the very least, we ought to say something is fundamentally wrong. Healthy babies eat. Healthy adolescents eat even more. That's not only true out in the world, it is true in the family of God. That said, it is possible to become an intellectual church in a way that is far less than healthy. It is possible to become excited about studying God's word as a purely academic enterprise, to begin to treat corporate worship as though it's a classroom where we're going to school somewhere, rather than the gathering of the family of God around the Lord's word in order to worship him. That, that is certainly possible. And it's something that we need to be particularly careful of not falling into as Reformed Christians. Verse 42 makes clear that this is not what the earliest disciples did. They were devoted to the apostolic teaching, certainly. But they were also devoted to the fellowship of believers, or as we might say, to the communion of the saints. Um, that word koinonia, which is translated fellowship, does not simply mean coffee and donuts with each other. Although there's nothing wrong with having coffee and donuts with each other. But it's a much stronger and richer word than this. I prefer to translate it shared life. Uh, this word would be used in the first century for two people going into business together. They're pooling their resources. They're sharing in the results. They're sharing in the hardships, right? How the business goes for one of them, it goes for both of them. That they are brought together in a type of shared life in their business. In fact, koinonia would even be used in terms of marriage. We know what a deep, intimate union that that involves. And so what the early church was devoted to was a shared life with their brothers and sisters in the family of God. It's a remarkable change of events. As Everett Harrison points out, since the converts at Pentecost had formerly lived in diverse parts of the earth and even spoken different languages as their mother tongue, their genuine fellowship augured well for the unity of the church in days to come. See, their unity was not based on their backgrounds. Their unity was based on the fact that they had one Christ one gospel, and one spirit. Well, this is far simpler for us as a local church than it was for the first church in Jerusalem. It remains every bit as important. Beloved, church unity cannot simply be an ideal that we study and we hold as a truth of God. True church unity is only manifested when we actually share our lives with each other. When we come together, of course, for corporate worship, we celebrate the Lord's Supper where there's one bread because there's one body, but also outside of church, that those simple things like going to the beach together, having a picnic together, inviting each other over each other's homes, that sort of shared life where we actually get to know one another and therefore we can pray meaningfully for one another and invest ourselves in one another and each other's struggles is an essential part of the unity of the church. 
We only experience this shared life when we actually live our lives together. Now, I want to say, you hear us pretty regularly because whenever we receive a member into communicant membership in this church, or even non-communicant membership, but just a week ago, we received Bob and Allison into communicant membership, there's, there's a line in that that I think is particularly pointed. As on behalf of Christ, I'm encouraging you to pray for this brother and sister, to, to set a godly example for them, before them. One of the things I say is, for in Christ, we are members of one another. Now, I am greatly encouraged by how in this congregation, to a large degree, this is already manifested. I, I see how you love one another and care for each other, particularly in times of need. But this is not something where we can check the box and say we have this done. This is something that we need to keep pushing forward on as Christ is calling us. I should add, this is not merely a call upon our lives. This is an extraordinary privilege. Um, it's a great blessing to be part of people who care about each other. Uh, some of you are aware that Harvard University, for 85 years now, has been conducting the longest study in human happiness. They started out 85 years ago, looking at students at Harvard University as they came in and matching up with some people in the community, and they followed them throughout their lives. And what they wanted to discover is what sort of differences in these individuals' lives led to health, led to being fruitful and productive, and ultimately led to people having a satisfied life. And they've been doing that now through generations. It's the longest study on happiness that's ever been done, and it's still ongoing. And their basic conclusion is as obvious as could possibly be to anybody who understands the Word of God, or even, frankly, the better aspects of secular philosophy. Happiness, and it turns out health as well, flows from having people who care about you. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. Uh, sometimes just a, a spouse. But having people who care about you that are invested in your life um, leads to people being healthier when they're older. It's a, better, it's a better determiner of whether or not people are going to be healthy when they're 80 if they have close relationships when they're 50 than any of the medical tests we can do on them in terms of you know, their cholesterol levels and so on. They are happier and healthier because people care about them. Um, isn't this true of the church? Now, not everyone in the church is going to be your friend. Very important distinction between love and like. Right? You're all required to love each other. You're not required to like each other. Like is often determined by having common interests. Like, to a large degree, gets uh, funneled by age. Now, sometimes there's, there's friendships that span great ages, but quite commonly because of similar interests, similar situations in family life, friends are of similar age backgrounds. Not everyone in this church is going to be your friend, but everyone in this church should know that there are people who care about them, who will be there for them if times get tough. In fact, who will be there for them when times are good to celebrate their joys and their sorrows. And would you believe it? Almighty God designed the church this way without getting any advice at all from the faculty of Harvard University. 
So first, a healthy church is devoted to God's word. And second, a healthy church is devoted to cultivating a shared life. Third, a healthy church is devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, a little bit later on in this passage, um, that expression is going to be used to talk about gathering in each other's homes and sharing common meals. And a small number of scholars think that's what it means here, but it almost certainly means here not that. It's not an expression of the fellowship of believers, our shared life. Rather, it's referring to the Lord's Supper. And it's not surprising that the Lord's Supper would be at the very heart of Christian worship for 2,000 years, or at least in most communions. The breaking of bread here refers to celebrating the Lord's Supper together in corporate worship. And the reason for this is rather obvious. It flows from the fact that Christ's life-giving death is at the center of our life together as the people of God. So week after week, Jesus comes and meets with us And we hear him say, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It is interesting, at least to people like me, that the breaking of bread became a shorthand way of talking about the Lord's Supper, since the shorthand does not include the giving of wine. So you want to ask why that is so. The explanation which resonates with me comes from Luke's account of the resurrected Jesus meeting with the disciples on the Emmaus Road. There Luke writes, When Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I think it's precisely, keep in mind, Luke wrote both the gospel according to Luke and Acts. I think it's precisely because the Lord became known to them in the breaking of the bread, but the breaking of the bread became a shorthand for the Lord's Supper. Well, whether or not this is the correct connection to make, There is a natural flow in corporate worship which moves from being called into God's presence, confessing our sins, hearing that our sins have been forgiven for Christ's sake, listening to the Lord speak to us as his word is read and preached, confessing our faith, offering up our prayers to God, and then finishing by communing with the Lord. That is, communing with the Lord around his table. I suspect that when Protestants move away from celebrating the Lord's Supper every week, they have tended to do so for one of two reasons. First, they have lost sight of the fact that Christ himself comes and administers the Lord's Supper to us. 
right? If you think of the Lord's Supper entirely as a visual aid, it becomes very easy to say, well, why don't we just have more preaching? Let's get the service done a little bit faster. But if you realize that Christ himself is coming to us, and through the ordinary means of bread and wine is offering himself to us so that you commune with him. Remember, we're talking about shared life in the previous point. Our shared life is not just on the horizontal plane. By God's grace, our shared life is with God himself. It's the natural conclusion and the climax for corporate worship, that we would feast upon Christ and commune with him. Second, this is a problem really in the Reformed tradition and not found that much outside the Reformed tradition. But some in the Reformed tradition have turned the Lord's Supper into an ordeal. That is, you had to have weeks and weeks of preparation out of fear that somehow you'd approach the Lord's Supper and do something wrong and therefore eat and drink to your own judgment. That, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of Paul's warning in Corinthians where the problem was is that people were despising their brothers and sisters in Christ while coming to the Lord's Supper. It wasn't that they somehow got something a little bit wrong. And see, here's the good news for us. Rather than communing with the Lord being rare, in the new covenant, this is one of our great blessings, in the new covenant, communing with the Lord, as special as it is, is ordinary. It's something that we get to do all the time. Right? We, we don't have to go hang out around the temple where there's only three great festivals a year where only the high priest and only once a year can go into the Holy of Holies. Rather, God has created a more intimate relationship with us. Maybe I should say that there's perhaps one other reason why many Protestant churches have given up celebrating the Lord's Supper every week. Although I do think those are the two primary ones, but the third is also just really practical. A lot of churches today are trying to get people out in less than an hour, right? And we don't have time for it, as it were. Well, to state the obvious, the New Testament does not tell us how long worship services should be, so we do not want to be dogmatic. My dear brothers and sisters, let me say this, and I think this I can be dogmatic about. If we're determining our worship service by trying to get it done quickly, as quickly as possible so we can get on to other things, pretty obviously we're looking at it all wrong. Fourth, verse 42 tells us that the first disciples were also devoted to the prayers. Now the definite article here is important. It's not simply that they were devoted to prayer, although I suspect they very much were particularly their private prayer times. We should be too. But the definite article here points to corporate prayer. In the temple at this time, there were set hours for the prayers, where the people could all gather and the priests would lead the people of God in praying to the Lord. Quite obviously, the early church copied that and brought it over into their own practice, uh, presumably not at the same times, but they frequently met in the early church in the temple courts, and they would have prayed the prayers together. Now, from the rest of the New Testament, we, we know something about how prayer worked in the corporate church. It was often led by the church officers, particularly by the elders. Here, of course, there are no elders yet. 
It was led by the apostles. But we also know from the rest of the New Testament that prayer and corporate worship included prayer by lay people, both male and female. Right? That's actually the reason why women had to have their heads covered in prayer. They didn't need to do that, as I would say, in the shower. Um, they needed to do that when they were in corporate worship, where they were praying with other men who were, who were present to make clear that they were not trying to impose or step on their authority as husbands or the male leadership of the church. However, here at the very beginning, if the, the crowds remain so large, thousands of people, I think it's pretty obvious that the prayers would have been led by the apostles, would not have been a bunch of spontaneous prayers going on, that would have been unintelligible. And if the people were all praying together, what they would have been praying is prayers that they had memorized. Right? Perhaps the Lord's Prayer, but perhaps many others as well. Remember that these are Jewish converts. Many of them would have known many of the Psalms by heart, and it would not be surprising if they prayed some of these Psalms together in worship. Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The Lord had brought about new creation, men and women in Christ, and this was showing up visibly in an entirely new family which was centered around our Lord. Furthermore, many, please note that adjective, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This morning we saw how the miracles of Jesus authenticated his unique authority, not just his authority over nature, not just his authority over demons, not just his authority over human health, but his authority to forgive sins. The miracles of these apostles are functioning in a parallel way. They were designed as signs that authenticated the apostles as truly being God's spokespeople, so that when they taught doctrine, you would believe it. They were authenticated by the Holy Spirit as speaking on behalf of God. Here's an obvious question. Does Almighty God do miracles like that today? And the answer is no. It's very straightforward. It's not a debatable answer. Well, if you have an orthodox theology. I am not saying that God does not continue to do miracles today. I am not saying that when you pray for loved ones who are ill, that God doesn't sometimes, apart from other means, simply put his hand on them and heal them. He is almighty God. Surely he does those sorts of things. What I am saying is, is God is not doing miracles today as signs that authenticate messengers today as being people that everyone in the church must listen to. There are no new apostles. There is no new word of God that is inspired and required for all of us to believe. The fact is, we don't need new miracles. It's one of the things that came up at the time of the Reformation. You know, some of the Roman Catholics said, look, you're teaching something new. Where are your miracles to authenticate it? Remember how the reformers responded? They said, we're not teaching anything new. We're teaching the apostolic doctrine. And the miracles the apostles did in the first century 
have authenticated that they are God's messengers. So as long as I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians or from Romans, I don't need any new miracles. Here we come to a passage which, oddly enough, has become controversial. I say oddly enough, it's become controversial because there are people in our own day, I actually have a friend of mine that grew up one flight up above from me where I grew up in the train tracks in New York in our apartment building who wants to appeal to this to say, see, Jesus was a communist. And therefore, it's become controversial. Although, as I say, that's a rather odd thing to have happened. Picking up in verse 44, we read this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Four things. First, this passage should never have become controversial, particularly in the way that I'm saying, regarding socialism and communism. At the heart of socialism is the civil government redistributing people's wealth. There is no civil government mentioned in this passage, and you cannot make the civil government fit into this passage. The shared life of these earliest disciples was something more intimate than the love that they were required to have for their unbelieving neighbors. And you and I are required to love our unbelieving neighbors and to care for them as well. But the intimate shared life is only within the family of God. It doesn't involve the civil government at all. Second, we should realize that all Luke is doing is fleshing out what this shared life of the first disciples looked like. The Lord has made us into a genuine family, and they were living as though that were true. Now, you know, in your own family, you have three, four brothers and sisters. Your economic status is going to be different in your family. But in all likelihood, if you have close relationships, it's not that you're going to, like, keep evening everything out. But if someone gets in trouble, you might sacrificially help your sister who's in need. Luke is saying that's what the church does as well. Third, it is an overreading of this passage to miss the fact that the disciples did not sell all their possessions. After all, they continued to meet in homes that members of the church still owned. And furthermore, when you read a little bit more into Acts, Peter will explicitly tell Ananias and Sapphira, well, you owned the house, wasn't it yours? And after you sold it, didn't the proceeds still belong to you? Right? This, this is not a command for everybody to get rid of all their goods and to simply pull them into one pot. But fourth, and this is the point that I think often gets ignored, not simply by uh, popular critics, but by even by Bible scholars. Fourth, it is important to notice that the only place in the New Testament where there is any emphasis about people selling their property is with the church in Jerusalem. But do you realize that? 
The only place in the New Testament where there's any emphasis on people selling their property is in Jerusalem. Now, if this was intended to be something practiced throughout the whole church, we'd expect to see the same thing in Philippi, in Thessalonica, right, in Corinth. Well, maybe not in Corinth, but certainly in Philippi, which is a loving and faithful church. We have to ask, why don't we see that? Now, what we see in Philippi is something we should be doing as well. People were generous. They were generous with each other. They were generous in supporting the mission. Paul actually talks about them using this word koinonia, having a shared life with him, so that they gave even out of their own poverty to support the advance of the gospel. That's a pattern for us as well. But why don't all the people in Philippi, all the people in Colossae that are wealthy, give up their wealth and give it to the poor in their midst? Because that's not God's pattern at all. In fact, what's going on in Jerusalem has to do with something that Jesus has told the church. We're going to get there eventually, Lord willing. But in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus plainly declares that within one generation, Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea is going to be completely destroyed. You're talking about the buildings of a temple complex. He says, not a single stone is going to be left on another. But read the reality of life back into this. Suppose that you own shares, that is stocks, shares of a company, and you know for certain that company is going to go out of business in the near future. What do you do with your shares? Well, I know what I do with mine. I'd sell them. And I'd invest the money, the capital, somewhere else. That's what the Jewish believers in Jerusalem are doing. They have the word of Jesus Christ. They believe the word of Jesus Christ. But they're living on borrowed time there in Jerusalem. It's all going to be destroyed in one generation. So they're selling off those assets that are going to be destroyed to invest them in things that aren't. First, they're helping each other, right? The poor within the church. But they're also using those resources to spread the gospel out throughout the Roman Empire. That promise, that word of Jesus deals with Jerusalem the surrounding environs alone. And therefore, this practice was never intended to be the practice of the entire people of God. Well, with this radical new way of life, it was rather radical, discourage people from converting. Should the early Christians have offered a second, more slimmed-down version it would not have been so challenging. But they could have talked to their Jewish neighbors and say, you don't have to live this radical shared life with everybody. You don't have to be devoted to the apostolic teaching and to, to corporate worship and the celebration of the Lord's Supper and praying together. Right? You know, I, I asked that question about them, but you know, I really mean it about us. In the church in North America today, we are plagued by churches that are trying to sell Christianity light in the hopes of gathering a bigger crowd, right? You just need a passing familiarity with Christianity, not devotion. You don't need to be invested in each other's lives. In fact, you can come to church essentially like consumers. You know, if it reaches people, isn't that worthwhile? Beloved, no, it is not. See, Jesus has not called us to entertain people. 
Jesus has commanded us to disciple people. He has commanded us, sending us out in his power, and he has commissioned us to disciple people from every people group, all the nations, but more literally, it's all the people groups. How do we do it? Proclaiming the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey every single thing that Jesus has taught us. And here are two things that are absolutely critical for us to remember. First, Jesus never invites us to market Christianity. We, after all, are not the ones who are building the church. He's not calling us to be clever. He's calling us to be faithful. And second, because Jesus is building his church, we have no reason to fear that people will find the way of Christ too demanding and therefore not find it. And so our passage this evening concludes like this. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. God's sovereign grace in your life as an individual, but God's sovereign grace in our life as the people of God and in building his church ought to give us great comfort. We don't have to be clever. We just need, by his grace, to be faithful. Beloved, Jesus Christ is building his church. Rather astonishingly, we are that church. By his grace, let us live like it. Amen.